In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we met some of Charles Self's nearest and dearest. And all of them spoke of a man who just loved life and was great fun to be around. He was somewhat larger than life character. He was something of a party animal, I suppose. He had a lovely face, he had a lovely smile, and he was just, he was fun. He loved Ireland. Yeah, he was very happy here. But uh, no, we had good laughs together. Yeah, good laughs. At the time of his murder, Charles was working with RTE as the main set designer on The Late Late Show. His attention to detail was renowned, his designs revered, his star rising. But all that was brutally snuffed out on a bitterly cold night not long after the big snow of 1982. He was just shy of his 33rd birthday when he was strangled and stabbed to death in his Dublin home. Another of the designers came over and just said, did you hear about Charles? What? He said he was murdered last night. On a certain level, he tries to just block it out and not, not imagine the actual act. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to go inside the crime scene. Whoever did this left clues, and we'll go through them all. We'll also take a look at Charles's final movements. The detectives had leads, but how well did they follow them? Frank, this is Alan. Alan, Alan. Alan. lovely to meet you. How's it going? Good enough. Thanks for coming into us. Ashton, could I trouble you for a glass of water as well, if you don't mind? Thanks a million. He's retired now, but in 1982, Alan Bailey was a member of the Vice Squad, attached to the Bridewell Garda station. Dublin's north inner city was his beat. Nowadays, most stations have a dedicated detective unit, but as Alan explains here, it was a little different back then. There was a murder squad, a serious crime squad, that was based in Dublin Castle. And uh, that, was, that would be the, the, the team that would be called out to investigate serious crime, including murder. In the country, they were referred to as the Dublin detectives, you know, because they're all Dublin-based. But um, you, you would have investigated your murder at local level to a certain extent if you needed assistance from outside people who had experienced in the murder investigation, well, then you called in this team. Or they came in. Mm-hmm. You know, someone at some level would decide that it's a case more appropriate for them. So they were quite specialised in that yeah, area of investigation. Yeah, yeah. Would you even hazard a guess, and I know it probably fluctuated over the years, but how many people roughly would have been on that unit? There could, be, could have been four or six teams of maybe five men, six men each, you know. Were you ever on the murder squad? No, no. Okay. But um, in my brief, I served in a Dublin North Central and so I covered it as bookman, I covered all the, the murders in that area. That would be Fitzgibbon Street, Store Street, the Braidwell and Mount Jai. And how many then, can you remember, would have been assigned to looking into that case? There would have been a substantial team because it was a city side. I mean, the team at the time would have been drawn from local detective units and the murder squad. So you had a lot of different scenes with a lot of different uh, local inquiries to make. So you would have had two, two or three different stations with men from each station and you would have had a murder squad. At the height of it, up to 50 detectives worked on Charles's murder investigation. Alan Bailey wasn't one of them, not at the beginning anyway, but he'd go on to play a vital role later. We'll come back to that. But for now, let's focus on what we know so far. 
from our chat with Bill Marr, we know he met Charles for some cheeky afternoon drinks in the Bailey. That was at about one o'clock on Wednesday, the 20th of January, 1982. Not that he needed an excuse, but Charles was in a celebratory mood. Work was going well, and he was in line for a pay rise. His tipple of choice was Black Bush, and after draining his last dram of whiskey at about 2.45 that afternoon, the two friends went their separate ways. Charles got a bus back to Donnybrook, where he was due to meet his boss in RTE. The next morning, at one minute to nine, the phone rang at the Garda Control Centre at Dublin Castle. A body had been found at number one Anzali Mews on Brighton Avenue in Monkstown, a picturesque coastal village on Dublin's south side. Charles shared that two-bedroom Mews with Vincent Handley, then one of the best-known DJs in the country. And what a week. It's been lots of excitement, great music, amazing talent and full houses all the way. And before we actually get... At the time, Vincent was actually in London, working for Capital Radio. The layout of their flat is important. And given that Bill once lived there with Charles for six months or so, who better than him to walk us through it? Well, it was a small muse and uh, you just walked in the door and stairs went straight up in front of you and then there was a little door into right-hand side into the main living room, which was uh, quite a sizable room, but uh, full of clutter. I mean, Charles was loads of records, videos. He did things like he had a box full of matches that he collected from everywhere he went. Anywhere he went in the world, restaurants, hotels, or whatever, there was a basket of those on the floor. And then there was a tiny kitchen at the end. And I mean tiny. And uh, very long and narrow. It was the length of the muse, but narrow. Mm-hmm. Then up the stairs you went, there was the bedroom that had been Vincent Hanley's and then I, I, I rented. Next to that was a small bathroom. And then at the end of the little hallway there, where there was an airing cupboard, and then there was Charles's bedroom, the main bedroom, which was quite large. Okay, so a small house by the sound. Very small, very small. With rooms in, you know, close proximity. Yeah, 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 very small. And would you, I'd imagine you guys would have spent the majority of your time downstairs in in the living room, whether it be... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Listening to music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, any time... We went home, we'd put on a music video or put on a record and have a glass of wine. And he, if if he did have people back to the house, more than likely somebody that he didn't know and have them back to have a glass, just a social drink and listen to music or watch music videos. A nightcap. Yeah. Whiskey one to base, over. As soon as the emergency call came in, an alert was put out over the Garda's radio system. A patrol car from Blackrock Garda station, with the call sign Whiskey One, arrived just a few minutes later. An ambulance crew was already there. The then state pathologist, Professor John Harbison, didn't arrive until just before lunchtime. Those at the scene were warned not to touch or move the body until he had examined it where it lay. Aside from reducing the risk of contaminating the evidence, this practice also assists when it comes to establishing how a person was killed. Things like blood spatter, drag marks, the position of head and limbs can all contribute to the overall picture. For example, 
The carpet on the stairs in Charles's home had been pulled away from the step, suggesting he may have tried to drag himself away from the knife blows. Before Professor Harbison's arrival, the muse was officially declared a crime scene and a cordon was established outside. Inside presented more questions than answers, as Alan Bailey explains here. The scene, to all intents and purposes, appeared to have been a, a robbery where uh, Charles was uh, attacked in the room. There's a lot of um, property taken and strewn around, found strewn around outside of the, the apartment. Um, and to look at it, it would appear that whoever killed Charles may have come in the front door, killed him and couldn't get back out the front door because of the way Charles' body was slumped at the end of the stairs. And then if, to look to all intents and purposes, whoever had killed Charles had exited through the window, the kitchen window. The kitchen was a small room off the, off the room where the murder occurred. And then um, there's, a, there's a counter, worktop, and to the pier, there's a person, the culprit got up on that, climbed out through the window into the courtyard outside. Did you visit the muse as part oh, of it? I did, yeah, yeah. How did one get into the house? The muse had two two apartments built either side of a courtyard. You had a big gate, a car, which car, but there's also a small wicket gate set in the main gate. They were all locked. And to get in, you'd have to open either the main gate, the big gate, or the, the wicket gate to get in. And that was locked when you're inside. So as you, as you entered the, the courtyard, was the, the apartment that Charles lived in. And there's another lady lived in an apartment on the left-hand side. Okay. okay, so Charles and I think he was living with Vincent Hanley Vincent at the time. Vincent Hanley at the time, yeah. They were on the right for yeah. some reason, and I don't know why, but for some reason I had always thought they were on the left and that Mary Liddell, their neighbour, was on the right. No, as you entered the, the courtyard, you had the, the kitchen window, you had the, the sitting room window, we say, and the front door. So if, walking from back to front. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. The, the, the window where it was suggested he, the culprit had left the house was the first thing on your right-hand side. Yeah, and, and actually looking at some archive photographs and footage from the crime scene yeah. uh, on the day of when there was clearly a, a, a guard cordon there, mm. uh, you can see that window. So that's that's the kitchen window. That's very helpful. Yeah. So to gain access, just to be very, uh, very clear, to gain access to the mews where yeah. Charles and Vincent lived, you would have to go through either this big gate for cars yeah. or the one beside it for pedestrians. Just, just set into that big gate. Okay, yeah. and then... You walk through the courtyard, you take a right, and mm-hmm. that's the front that, door of the yeah, muse. Yeah. And as you open the door, then what greets you? The stairs. That's the very first thing you walk into with a very sharp turn, right-hand turn, then into the dining room. Okay. And it's at the foot of that stairs that Charles' body is found, lodged between the door and the foot of the stairs. I understand. His head was on the first step. It was obvious from the moment the guard stepped in through Charles's front door that he had met a very violent end. His body was the first thing that greeted them. At a glance, the attack appeared frenzied and ferocious. On closer inspection, it was also clear that Charles hadn't stood a chance. The classic overkill. A lot, a lot of murders are one bullet, one stab, or sometimes one box, maybe a, blow, a few blows or a hammer or something like that. But Charles said was stabbed 14 times and six of those were through and through. That means the, the knife transfixed the body. That's huge overkill. I think any, there was any one of three 
of the injuries that were inflicted would have killed him instantly. The others he would have bled to death from. So it's classic overkill, you know, and it often means that there's a personal connection. You're not looking at your run-of-the-mill murder, I'm sorry, when you see the overkill. OK. And these um, these injuries, Alan, the, the stab wounds, and I, and I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, I understand that uh, Charles had evidence of strangulation as well. Is that there's true? A, there was a ligature attached, yeah. Just to be clear, there was a ligature around, around his, his neck. neck. Yeah. Uh, what type of ligature do you know? It's a cord off a dressing gown. So the cord of a dressing gown had been looped around Charles's neck. It was just one part of the cord. And from the last episode, we know the other part was found tied around the leg of a chair in the living room. The cord was taken from Vincent Hanley's red dressing gown, which used to hang on a hook behind the door of the bathroom. Now, the bathroom was upstairs, right next to Vincent's bedroom. The detectives were satisfied that at some point, that red cord was used to restrain Charles in the chair. But what was less clear was whether he was restrained against his will. Whether that was part of some sexual act or whether it was part of the the murder. We could never speculate. And what about the initial investigation team in 1982? Was that a theory, possible motive? Well, it's it's, it's open to you to interpret it, you know. So you, you don't know. I mean, if there's bondage involved in the sex act, well, maybe that's why it was there, you know. Or the way some ligatures are applied, not to kill, but to heighten excitement. And... Charles, just to be clear, wasn't this ligature, it wasn't attached to the chair at the time. It, oh, no. it had been separate. Char- the, when Charles was found, his, when his body was found, it had slumped at the foot of the stairs. Whether he had crawled there, been dragged there, again, you can't say. Mm-hmm. And just again, to get back to the injury suffered, and you did say that, I know such was the force yeah. used that it did It's transfers. true and true, yeah. Went true and true. Yeah. From the front. So he was stabbed 14 times from the front. Yeah. What does that tell you about the injury apart from the obvious? Well, the, the obvious was that, was he tied? Was it a continuum? Was, was he stabbed here and then there? And, you know, again, you had pools of blood in the room, which would suggest there may be another place where he was attacked or it could be just from him bleeding out yeah. as, he, as he left the room and tried to leave the room. Look, I know we're going to specifics here and this is 40 years ago, but was there any evidence of the direction that the knife was or the angle when it was thrust into and did that give the investigation team something that they could work Well, with? D- 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 because of the proliferation of injuries, you could say that there's a straight down or, you, you know, but I mean, there's a, a variety of wounds, so they came from different directions and, and again, with different degrees of, of ferocity. Mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm asking is, was it clear from the direction of the stab wounds where they entered the body and the angle they entered the body at, was it clear whether Charles was seated or standing? Oh, no, he was lying. Lying? Lying, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Now, there's some of the injuries that may have, that may have suggested you've, at one stage you may have been sitting. Did Charles self have any defensive wounds? Very few, very, very few. And what does it suggest to you when there are, like, given the ferocity and the, the, the frenzy of such an attack, what does it suggest to you when a victim has has no or very little defensive wounds? It was an ambush. It was an assault. Unpro- well, no, I say unprovoked now, but it was certainly unexpected, I imagine. He didn't have time to defend himself. He, just, he was just attacked. That he was perhaps <laughs> taken by surprise? Perhaps, yeah. The first 48 hours of any murder investigation are crucial. Memories begin to fade after that, 
so it was time to start asking questions. The murder squad was called in and an incident room was set up at Dunleary Garda Station. Again, Vincent Handley was away when his flatmate was murdered, but Charles didn't return to an empty muse that night. He didn't return alone either, but for now, let's focus on who was already there. Bertie Tyrer Bertie was a designer too. He worked with Charles in RTE and would often stay over at the Muse. Couldn't say I knew, knew him at all. No, I didn't know him socially. I, I just somebody come home one night and he say or sleep on the couch, you know. Here is Bill Maher again. He didn't know Bertie very well, but he certainly remembers him. I think once I saw him in the bar. And what kind of relationship did he and Charles have, do you know, aside from being work colleagues and him staying there occasionally? I wouldn't have thought there was much, much to it. Wouldn't have thought there were, over, I'd say it was a work relationship, probably. Given the fact that he was significantly older than both you and Charles, it would have been hard to have a kind of a relationship framework. Well, when you're 31, you think a 55-year-old is an old man, you know, you don't... Uh, have an awful lot in common. Um, I don't know. It's just he wasn't out and about, so no reason to be, uh, to know him, you know. Bertie was the one who found Charles's body. He lived in Wicklow, but due to the heavy snow, he couldn't get back to his cottage on the night of the murder. So he stayed in Vincent's room at the top of the stairs. He'd been there for a few nights at that stage, but he was due to move out the following day because Christine... Remember the unintentionally hard-to-find Christine Falls? Well, she was going to move in for a while. She'd broken up with her boyfriend, and Charles had kindly offered to let her stay at the Muse until she found somewhere else to live. So Bertie had to go. Anyway, Bertie got up that morning at 8.45. He walked downstairs, and there, with his head lying on its side on the bottom step, was Charles. A heavily blood-stained tea towel was beside his face. His black sweatshirt had been pulled up under his armpits. His right arm slightly flexed, his left extended behind his body so that the left hand lay on the floor in a pool of blood behind the small of his back. His legs, from the knees down, lay inside the living room area, while the rest of his body lay on the floor of the entrance hall, maybe three feet or so from the front door, which would have prevented it from being opened. Bertie stepped over the body and he ran into the living room to call for help. Music was still playing on the stereo and the room had been ransacked. Records, tape cassettes, ornaments, magazines, books and clothes lay strewn across the floor. Bertie couldn't get a dial tone. Charles was very generous with his money in the pub, but less so when it came to paying his phone bill. So Bertie had to run across the courtyard to raise the alarm from a neighbouring muse. Naturally, the murder squad was eager to talk to him and he gave them their first lead. A stranger had woken him that night. Bertie said he heard nothing from downstairs at, at, no, at, no, at no stage, but the only thing he knew was that this man came in, walked into the bedroom and said sorry and walked, turned immediately and walked out again. And, sorry, he didn't come into the bedroom, so he opened the door of the bedroom. He's, he's very vague, but then you put it down to the fact that he'd been awoken. And I understand that he drew a sketch of this person. Bertie would have provided a sketch, sketch yeah. Okay, so you saw that sketch? Yeah. Bertie's man was a um, short, dark, curly hair. 
I mean, that's all Bertie could say because it's he's in the dark in the in his bed. Did Bertie recall him switching on the light? But well, he was silhouette, silhouetted against the light outside anyway in the hall. Yeah. yeah, and this was. Do you have any idea what time this was? Sometime around two o'clock, I believe. It wasn't much, but the detectives now had a potential suspect, or at least a sketch of a potential suspect, drawn by the hand of Bertie, and based on what he claimed to have seen that night. So who was this man? Bill Maher was asked to take a look. You saw the sketch. I saw the sketch. I I was asked to come out to Dunleary and have a look at it. Can you tell us as best as your memory will allow what that sketch looked like? It was a pen and ink drawing, black ink on, on white paper. I think it was like an A4 sheet, I'm not sure, with the exact size, but it was a very distinctive man with black curly hair, like a mass of black hair and dark eyes and quite a handsome sort of man, somebody around late 20s, early 30s. And I was told by the guards that Bertie said that he spoke with a a West Brit accent or was very well spoken. Now, Bertie himself was English, so... um, he said it was like a very well-spoken West British accent. So if anyone was to know what a West British accent sounded like, Bertie probably uh, exactly, would have been. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, did it, that description ring any bells for you? description rang no bells with me whatsoever. It's certainly nobody in our social circle at the time. Quite striking, I think I would have noticed him in the bars if I'd seen him. After first speaking to Bertie, the one who found Charles's body, and Bill... Again, one of the last people to see him alive. The next step for the murder squad was to nail down Charles's last known movements. Nowadays, high-quality CCTV systems are found on almost every urban street. They're mounted inside and outside most businesses and lots of homes too. But in 1982, the best way to find out who was where, at what time and with who was by knocking on doors and asking around. Those inquiries revealed that after leaving work on the day of his murder, Charles went home and lit a fire. Sometime later, he decided to go back into town. And at about half past eight that evening, while waiting for a bus in the freezing cold on Monkstown Road, a sympathetic stranger pulled up and offered him a lift. Charles gladly accepted. He was dropped off near O'Connell Bridge and he then made the short walk back to the Bailey on Duke Street. From there... He went to the South William pub, where he stayed until half past ten, before going to Bartley Dunn's, another gay-friendly bar in the city centre, for last orders. Where he ended up next was of huge interest to the investigation team. He left Bartley Dunn's and went to the hotspot, just to take away Dunn and the keys. And the staff, they remember him, he was quite well known to them. He visited every night he was in town. He was Charles very affable, very friendly and outgoing person, you know. And that's the one thing that comes across. When I say I was on the vice squad back then, there was a number of public titles around the city centre and there'd be areas that were frequented by males looking for sex. For the most part, all sex at that stage was on street, as opposed to nowadays we have brothels and massage parlours. So both male and female prostitutes worked on the streets. And uh, whilst there's a certain tolerance shown to the female prostitutes, I said it was very little shown to the male prostitutes. Rent boys, was that what they Rent used boys, to be referred yeah, to? Yeah, and um, it wasn't the time to be gay in Dublin or in Ireland in 1982. So after leaving the hotspot restaurant, he went across, obviously, to the toilets where he met this man. 
This man that Alan speaks of got a taxi home with Charles that night. The toilets where they met were public toilets on Burr Quay. They've since been demolished, but in 1982, they weren't just a place to pick up prostitutes, they were also a popular cruising spot for gay men, especially for those still in the closet who maybe feared being spotted in one of the gay-friendly bars. As Alan said a moment ago, the girls in the chipper knew Charles well. He was on first-name terms. Two of them on duty that night remembered Charles being in a queue of about nine people. He ordered fish and chips. He was on his own. Two young male prostitutes were also in the queue. Ruby and Kitty. And during my chats with Bill and Charles's friend and colleague Alan Farkerson, I asked them both if they knew Charles to ever pick up rent boys. Here's what Bill had to say. I wasn't aware of the restaurant they said he'd been in that night down on the Keys. This place, the hot pot, was it? I wasn't even aware of it. I never knew Charles. I knew he used to go down the Keys, but I, I didn't know about there. And did you know Charles to be a person that would bring rent boys home? No. He never had the money to pay them anyway, so... Um, Charles didn't go around with a load of cash in his pocket. To buy I don't think rent boys would have taken credit cards in those days. And even if they did, Charles' credit card wouldn't have been good. Like Bill, Alan Farkerson didn't think Charles used rent boys either, albeit for very different reasons. I remember that being said, and even somewhat recently um, hearing that suggested. I was, first of all, never... Uh, been aware of any of that and can't believe that he did because that just wasn't his thing. I mean, I I remember him saying the most exciting part of finding somebody, if you like, was the chase. And that presumably is the business of persuading somebody to engage in a relationship of whatever nature with you and, and a certain triumph if you manage to have that. So to simply hand over money for sex it would not give him, him anything, I don't believe. It's interesting to hear you say that because you're not the first person to say almost exactly what you mm, just okay. said, that Charles was excited by the chase and that a financial transaction just wouldn't have done it for him. I can't imagine. Unsurprisingly, Charles's murder attracted a lot of media attention. It was shocking news and it appeared on all the front pages of that evening's newspapers. Many people came forward with information. A young man who knew Charles remembered seeing him at about half past twelve that night. He said he spotted him chatting to two men, both in their mid-twenties, near those public toilets on Burr Quay. This witness had been in the gay club at the Hirschfeld Centre in Temple Bar and interestingly, he recognised one of the men Charles was with and he told the guards he'd seen this man in the club that night. At roughly the same time, a bus conductor who also knew Charles from the gay scene saw him standing with a man along the quays. He remembered this man as being maybe 25 years of age, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 10 inches in height of medium build with medium length fair hair. All were considered valuable leads by the investigation team at Dunleary Garda Station, but it wasn't until a man called Patrick Shanley came forward that the detectives felt they'd made a real breakthrough in the case. Patrick was a taxi man, and on the night in question, again at about 12.30am, he was parked at the top of the rank on Eden Quay when two men got into the back of his cab. Monkstown, please, came the Scottish Burr from behind. 
The taxi driver was proved to be a fantastic witness, even down to the monies that were paid and the change, and in which he even, you know, could even tell us that this is exactly, tell the police at the time, that's exactly what he gave me in change and all, you know. So he, and he was quite specific in relation to his description, that he said the man was about 25 years of age with fair collar lint hair and it dressed in a suit. You know, and you think to yourself that this is somebody who's done cruising for sex on the keys. You might question the taxi man's memory, but I wouldn't. Because I, he could tell us the exact fear, what he was, how he was paid, and what he got, you know, and what change he given, everything like that. And and as we all know, uh, Dublin taxi drivers are very good memories. Very good memories, yeah. yeah. So so he was considered a reliable witness. Yeah. So reliable, in fact, that I understand in the back of his description, a photo fit, an identikit was produced. Yeah. You might just tell us. Yeah, what there was, that a, was there was a photo fit made of of the of the taxi passenger, you know, which was used quite a lot, quite extensively in it. Now, um, if you go on then to the next description was the one of Bertie Trier. This is the man upstairs in bed. And he talks about the man who pushed in the bedroom door and would be totally experienced with that description. So we didn't, that introduced the second person in the apartment. So who was this mystery man in the taxi? In the next episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to try and find out what, if anything, he had to do with what happened. It could be a kind of crime of passion, but it could also be a, a gay hatred kind of type crime, a homophobic crime. And what about other suspects, like the man who walked into Bertie's room that night? There was one person of interest. My hands were shaking when I went up to ring the guard to say that he was in the bar. We'll also look at how the guard investigation into Charles's murder took a dark turn. Did prejudice trump justice? in 1980s Ireland. Well, they focus too much on the entire community rather than on the killer. If there's a car crash, you don't start interviewing every car owner in the country. You actually look at the crash. Subscribe to Inside the Crime on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. Archive clips in this episode were from RTE.